Case file number 4.9. Crypto Wars. A new hope. Observed by Agent Crenshaw. Subject 1, alias Hackalope. Subject has a history of working in computer security for over 20 years. He has been observed to several Fortune 500 companies and federal agencies during that period. He has been amassing historical information related to espionage and covert action as well as corporate malfeasance. Subject 2, alias Emir. Subject has a history of working in computer security for the last 10 years. He has been observed at NASA facilities regularly. We've also tracked him to the gym where he seems to be bodybuilding. We are amassing evidence to charge him with felony for skipping leg day and curls on the squat rack. Subjects are suspected of having information related to hacking the Gibson. Uh, the accounting subdirector of the Gibson's working really hard. I think we got a hacker. It is a period of Cold War. Rebel cryptographers, striking from a secret base, have won their first victory against the evil fascist empire. After the battle, rebel cryptographers managed to publish the secrets of their arc of encryption and set methods to hide all of the information on the entire planet. Pursued by sinister NSA agents, a lone German rushes to publish the code that can save his people and bring freedom to the internet. Nice, nice. Now we fade to black, or to the, yes. a backdrop of stars with lasers. Well, actually, I want to go right in from there into the music. So let's talk about that German there for a second. Okay. Incidentally, the fascist empire was the Third Reich in that case. <laughs> um, and the uh, rebel cryptographers striking from a secret base, whereas Bletchley Park, which we already did have an episode on. Mm-hmm. Um, so the German we're talking about that starts a lot of this off, and this is mostly about him, is a guy named Horst Feistel. Okay. He's a really important guy in the story of cryptography, but he doesn't get as much press as the guys that publish the algorithms that we use pretty regularly. Right, yeah. And he was born in 1914 in Germany. But when he was basically a teenager, best information I have, he left Germany for Zurich to live with his aunt. Okay. And this was a about the time that Hitler was talking about conscripting people into military service. Mm-hmm. So got out while the getting was good. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he finished college in Europe and then he moved to the U S and tried to become a citizen. Um, this is, you know, in the thirties, right, right. early forties. And he was trying to become a citizen uh, and he was about to get it done. And then Pearl Harbor happened. Oh yeah. And not only did they not give him his citizenship on schedule, but he was his travel was restricted to the Boston area. Mm, okay. So he's a physicist and mm-hmm. he was he wanted to be in America. He wanted to contribute to the American war effort. He had no love for Hitler, as it turns out. Right, you're right. Yeah. So he was able to get hired at the Cambridge Research center in boston which is an air force sponsored laboratory or was an air force sponsored laboratory it has since been consolidated into the main air force research and development system which is based out of uh, wright patterson air force base but the cambridge research center was in cambridge massachusetts in boston okay so in 1944 because they needed all the big brains they could get and he was totally into it he became employed at the Cambridge Research Center and was given mm-hmm. both his citizenship and a security clearance. Okay, okay. So good for him. 
and though he had a lifelong interest in cryptography, he was a German-born American, and they gave him his citizenship and his security clearance, but that they weren't going to go all the way with him. So yeah, he yeah. wasn't actually working in the main cryptography projects or anything like that. Even though he said, man, I'd really like to do this. They were like, um, maybe, <laughs> maybe not right now. Yeah, like, eh, kind of can't trust you right now. As it turns out, though, he still had a pretty major contribution that was related to cryptography. Hmm. While he was at the CRC, uh, there was a project to create an, an identify friend or foe system. Okay. They done a bunch of work on this. And when he got a chance to look at it, he said, you know, this is vulnerable to a number of attacks of like replay and modification of the signal. So validation of, of signal, replay of signal. These are problems that we see today, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So he recognized them, but he recognized them in 1944. <laughs> <laughs> so he and his team of mathematicians, they pulled in a couple of other folks from academia and they worked it out. They created a system that addressed a lot of those vulnerabilities and in the process created some of the foundations of what we use now in block ciphers. So it was the first practical block, block cipher that, that made that work. Okay, cool. So though this was successful, by the late 50s, all cryptography work had ended up in the NSA. So, so it ends, we end up with the Cold War. He's still at the research center. He's trying to do this work. And there's basically no cryptography at the CRC anymore because mm, okay. yeah. it basically got all sucked up into the NSA. So Feistel ended up going to MITRE. And those who aren't familiar with MITRE, which is still around today, it's a mm -hmm. not-for-profit organization that runs a bunch of government-sponsored research and development projects. They're usually fairly associated with the Air Force, but they do a lot of different projects and they operate as a little bit of an enduring think tank. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, the guy who, who leaked the, the Pentagon Papers, Daniel Ellsberg, worked at MITRE. Um, <laughs> and that's how he got access to the things that he got access to. Right, yeah. Um, yeah. So Faisal wanted to start to incubate a cryptography practice at MITRE, mm -hmm. but things kept getting derailed and it never got anywhere. So Feistel and others believe that the NSA caused both at CRC and MITRE and probably other places, programs related to cryptography to be abandoned through political and bureaucratic means. <gasps> that is a solid one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they would do that out in the open, wouldn't they? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Again, there's no evidence, but this is a very common conception from the people that were there at the time and would be in a, in, in a place to get the rumor and innuendo, even if they didn't have the official placement. So I, I think it's worth mm. at least mentioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's Feistel, end of the 60s, can't work on cryptography because NSA. So I'm going to introduce a different player now. A guy named David Kahn. Okay. He was a journalist, or he started out as a journalist, and he, by dint of him creating the book The Code Breakers, essentially became a bit of a cryptographer. Hmm. The book The Code Breakers, published in 1967, was 
basically the definitive work on cryptography and the history of cryptography for about 25 years. It's like a thousand pages long and it's huge. In fact, I Damn. I now have a copy of it. I did not <laughs> have a chance to read any of it. Oh, really? Just... This episode. I'm very interested in, in, in reading it, but, you know, not important for today's episode. In fact, yeah. for today's episode, there is a book called The Crypto Wars by um, Craig Jarvis. And honestly, it's been a huge part of this episode. He just he covered the subject so thoroughly, got so many good quotes that mm. I only did a little bit of correlation research and validation because he covered the subject so well. Right. And he's probably going to be an important part of other episodes that are related to this. He doesn't cover everything I wanted to cover in this series, but he covers a lot of it. Mm-hmm. So so all props to him. Go buy the book. I bought it twice, one in Kindle, one in one in physical. <laughs> It's totally worth reading, but if you just want the short, short version, well, you can listen to me talk about this for two plus hours, (laughs) (laughs) possibly four plus hours. We'll see how this ends up. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so this book covers the entire history of cryptography, going back 4,000 years, going all over the world, India, China, Mesopotamia, Iran, everywhere. Oh, damn. And... He also included like everything he could get, including an analysis on U.S. signals intelligence during World War II to publish documents by the U.K.'s General Communications uh, Headquarters, which is known as GCHQ. They were the mm-hmm. folks that ran the Bletchley Park research. He pulled everything he could possibly get his hands on about cryptography that wasn't locked behind the vault of NSA. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. Or anywhere else that would that would be able to keep it secret. He he pulled everything together. So he was contracted to write this book in 1961 by the Macmillan Publishing Company. Okay. Uh, and in 66, he they had pretty close to the final manuscript. Hmm. Macmillan's like, all right, this is a thousand-page book with a lot of technical <laughs> stuff about cryptography. Maybe we should ask the Pentagon whether or not there's anything maybe a little sensitive in here. Right, yeah. So they gave the co- a copy of the manuscript to the Pentagon without telling Khan. Yeah, okay. And then the Pentagon gave it to the NSA. <laughs> and then the NSA probably gave it to the United States Intelligence Board, which is a which was kind of a, a pan-agency intelligence committee. Mm. They all looked at this and said, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) So we don't know exactly when, but we are pretty darn sure that Khan was was on the list of people that were that were uh, observed under the Minaret program, which is a Mm -hmm. domestic spying program. What they did for wiretapping before we had the the FISA courts. Right. Yeah. Um, So that gave them license to tap his phone calls, read his telegram, stuff like that. Yeah, Yeah. 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 The USIB, the United States Intelligence Board, recommended low-key actions to prevent publication because they didn't want to be seen as actually censoring this. They just wanted it censored. (laughs) The DOD sent a letter in response to the manuscript that it would not be in the national interest to publish the book. They didn't want redactions. They didn't want the book published at all. Right, yeah. But they were in this bind because they wanted to do it low key. They wanted to keep their whole, like, nobody gets to do cryptography but us on the DL. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the NSA, after not getting any kind of response to 
the kind of redactions they want and whatnot. The director of the NSA, General uh, Marshall Carter, went from DC to New York to the Macmillan offices in New York to okay. meet with the chairman of, of um, Macmillan, Lee C. Doughton. Hmm, okay. Now, Doughton didn't know what this was about, what the, what the meeting was about, or even that Carter was from the NSA <laughs> when right, they talked. Yeah. So Carter was, was still really pushing this, don't publish it. And he said, you can't rely on Khan. He's not a real cryptography. He doesn't have an academic pedigree. He, didn't, he never worked for the government in any capacity. And Doughton was like, we're pretty sure we're, we're good with, with the work. Right, yeah. And I can't make any changes to the manuscript without Khan's permission because of our contract mm. with Khan. Right, yeah. So the NSA realized that they couldn't do this on the DL, and they weren't prepared to do it any more officially than that. Mm-hmm. So in the end, after all the hullabaloo, which ended up taking basically a year or so, they finally said, okay, you can publish the manuscript. We just want you to take out these three paragraphs that detail the very close cooperation between the NSA and the GCHQ cryptography organization. And Khan said, well, you know, it doesn't compromise the actual cryptography that we're talking about. And um, it's a relatively minor concession considering they didn't want this published at all. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I can give them this win. Yeah. So, again, in 67, it was published. Huge book, inspired a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason we're talking about this is it inspired some very important people going forward. So the irony, the end funny thing about this is that all that cooperation, the reason why Khan put it down is because he had evidence that it happened. That mm-hmm. evidence was some GCHQ publications, which were public. So anybody who read the bibliography of the book <laughs> back down the source material would find out anyway. Find out. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's crafty. I like that. So it probably kept that fact less public or completely not public for a while. But at this point in history, we know that the redactions happened, we know why they happened, and, we, and we're able to verify that the information came from somewhere. Right, yeah, exactly. So we have this compilation of all of, all of this at work on cryptography, and we have Feistel being very disillusioned at MITRE. Well, in 1968, Feistel starts working at IBM's Thomas J. Watson Research Center in Yorktown Heights. This is usually referred to in that world as Yorktown. Mm-hmm. And it's IBM's pure research and development facility, or one of them. Okay. There's a lot of independence and freedom. It's a think tank. They bring mm-hmm. people in who already have some proven ability, some track record, and say, go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> right. And at Yorktown, he actually had a lot of freedom. Um, Alan Conham. Uh, was the director at the time, or mm. had a lot of overlap with Feistel. And one of the quotes that's in the Crypto Wars books was, if they hired you in Yorktown, you do what you wanted as long as you did something. Mm-hmm. And Feistel did something. He formalized the idea of a crypto system. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Alan also said that he would regularly work from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m., but he <laughs> did enough <laughs> to totally make it worthwhile. Oh, jeez. That's crazy. 
So in 1973, Feistel published an article in Scientific American called Cryptography and Computer Privacy. And it largely describes digital ciphers and their requirements, what you need to have in order to be a, a usable and reasonable digital cipher. Okay. And it takes the reader through the eight or nine pages of the article. It's not a short article. I mean, as magazine articles go anyway. Right, yeah, yeah. From the journey of the basic substitution cipher, you know, the secret decoder ring thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, he skips over a lot of the, the, the older sub, uh, modifiable substitution ciphers and doesn't talk about Enigma, which are all just modifications of the substitution cipher to make it more, more difficult to break. Right, yeah. He skips over a lot of that, goes to what, in essence, he doesn't call it a one-time pad, but it is what, what we call, refer to as a one-time pad, which is okay. you have a copy of jumbled text and I have a copy of jumbled text and it's the same jumbled text that we've shared previously. And you basically use a substitution cipher that goes letter for letter through that pad. And mm -hmm. if the jumble of letters were unpredictable, but we both have the same copy, it is essentially unbreakable cryptography, but... The issue here is that the key is as long as the message, and you need a means of securely sharing it beforehand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So from there, realizing that that's not practicable, we start talking about what a digital cipher does, what happens when we turn these letters into hexadecimal numbers, and how we turn those hexadecimal numbers into other hexadecimal numbers that aren't the same, but you can bring one back to the other in a reliable way that isn't predictable. Right, yeah, yeah. That's the essence of, of what a block cipher is. Yeah. Um, and he talks about essentially what is required for the obfuscation and stuff like that. It's, again, it's a nine page article. And while he doesn't, you're not a PhD in cryptography at the end of it, it goes over a lot of things. But importantly, and the reason I bring it up now, not only because it really put his name on the, on the, on the map, in terms of his, his public profile. He also said some stuff during or in that article that was prescient. Uh, instead of only citizens interested in the practice of uh, secret communications, those citizens being only, in his words, lovers and thieves, it becomes in the interest of every individual to have secure messages, not just storage, but also in transit. Because with continued use of computers, he made the observation that the ability to discover and compile dossiers on every citizen becomes real. Mm -hmm. right. So yeah, yeah. The, the, the modern surveillance state of not just who are you and where you are, but everything that you've reasonably done in your life mm -hmm. became something that he was concerned about before we had basically anything on computers that, that needed encryption. Well, yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, actually, we're going to get to it in a second because he'd already done some of the very first like production crypto system work at that point. Actually, okay. So during his work on cryptography at Yorktown, he created the first computer implementation of a, of a block cipher. Mm -hmm. This program was originally named Demonstration, but the system he was working on could only do five letters for a program name. So oh, okay. it became shortened to Demon. <laughs> <laughs> nice, I like it. It employed a 128-bit algorithm and it worked reliably. Uh, after a colleague suggested a better name might be Lucifer, Feistel agreed and renamed it within Yorktown to Lucifer thereafter. <laughs> but on the other side of the building, 
1966, IBM had been, had been contracted by the Lloyds Banking Group to build what would, be, would become the first ATM. Mm-hmm. Now, the project leader, Walter Tuckman, was concerned that the ATM system would be vulnerable to communication attacks like a communication replay attack. Right, yes. Yeah. And so like, he was worried about this, so he attempted the attack on a rainy Sunday evening mm-hmm. and resulted in the first jackpotting of an ATM. <laughs> So his concerns were warranted and provable. And sorry to Barnaby Jack, but you didn't start it. It was started (laughs) with the very first ATM system. (laughs) So Tuckman goes to the other side of the building, the computer science team in Yorktown and said, hey, I've got this communication security problem. And Faisal Mm -hmm. like raises his hand saying, I got you, buddy. Um, (laughs) What I consider one of the technical chocolate peanut butter moments, Lucifer was integrated into the IBM ATM system in 1971 and addressed basically mm-hmm. all of the, the uh, communications concerns that Walter Tuckman had, at least in the first, impl- in the first implementation. Hmm. Okay. So Demon was at that point production. They'd made it work. They were confident in it. it had made it from pure research through research and development to real implementation at that point. Mm-hmm. So also in March, 1973, the National Bureau of Standards asked for candidates for the first digital encryption standard. And that's what DES stands for, digital encryption standard. They were like, maybe we need some encryption. We need not just some encryption, but a standardized method of employing encryption. Because right. in 1965, there was a law, the Brooks Act, uh, that was about government procurement and the use of computers in the government that had some requirements. But further, there was a lot of discussion at that point in time and pressure even to secure the the secret data about citizens that the government held. Mm. And those concerns resulted in the Privacy Act of 1974. But in 73, when they released this, this was one of their concerns before the law was even passed. So, hey, good looking forward. Um, So first they went and they asked the NSA. And in the 70s, the NSA was really worried about hardware encryption, which is the stuff that they had been doing. Mm -hmm. And there's a quote in the book uh, from an NSA cryptographer named Richard George. And he said that in 1973, he asked about software-based encryption and he was told not to spend more than 10 percent of his time analyzing software encryption because what he said in quotes was we will never run crypto in software you can't trust computers (laughs) very interesting they might have been right about that but that didn't prevent (laughs) us from doing it (laughs) the might is doing a lot of work there and if because if they weren't trustworthy we wouldn't have a job and if they were trustworthy we wouldn't have a job but Mm -hmm. since they might we have jobs yeah thankfully (laughs) The devil there is in the details. So the NSA wasn't really prepared to develop software-based encryption at all. And their development cycle, the development cycle for, for, for all of this work for both the National Bureau of Standards and the NSA was pretty long. Mm-hmm. And they wanted this done in a year. And the NSA said, I don't, we said, essentially, we don't want to stake our reputation on something that we're going to develop in a year. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So an example of this was the handheld radio, radio algorithm, uh, which was designed in 1957 and went through 12 years of testing and evaluation. Damn, okay. And, and they had 
a not unreasonable concern, which it's kind of funny because this is this was true even back then, that the NSA was concerned that nobody would trust an algorithm developed by them. <laughs> like they, they were they were actively concerned that even if they had done good honest work, that a bunch of folks would believe that they had engineered a flaw in the algorithm that they could exploit. Yeah, yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> well, I mean, well, in a bit we'll talk about that. So <laughs> the DES specification said that DES needed to not be a secret algorithm. And in fact, later in what might, in some people's eyes, have replaced the code breakers as like the ultimate reference for digital for cryptography, applied cryptography by Bruce Schneider, which I've Schneider, which I've mentioned before, he says in the preface, if I take a letter and lock it in a safe and gave you the safe along with the design and specifications of the safe and a hundred identical safes with their combinations so that you could, so that you and the world's best safe crackers can study the locking mechanism and you still can't open the safe and read the letter, that's security. Mm, yeah, yeah. And so basically saying exactly the same thing. It's not that the algorithm is secret, it's that the algorithm is good. <laughs> Well, yeah. Security is maintained. <laughs> and the premise and reality of digital cryptography is that that's been basically true. We've been able to accomplish that. Right, yeah. The second thing is it needs to be able to withstand a known plain text attack. And a known plain text attack is that you have the ciphertext message and the plain text that would be it from uh, if you decrypted it. But mm -hmm. you still can't derive the key, even though you have both sides of the equation. Right, yeah. And that the only viable attack was straight brute force, what they called exhaustion. Mm -hmm. So from the, the, the request for candidates for the defense encryption standard, they got three responses. All three were basically professors and academics saying, hey, I'm be willing to study the problem if you fund me. <laughs> um, so National Bureau of Standards and the National Security Administration go back and forth kind of arguing about who's going to do it and how this is going to get done, but nobody was really willing to pick up the ball. Right, right. But in 71, well, sorry, let me rewind. I missed, I skipped a bullet point that's important. In 1971, IBM tried to patent Feistel's algorithm as okay. a block cipher cryptographic system. Mm -hmm. So this patent was sitting there, and then the NSA was having yet another argument about this internally to try and figure out what was what. Right. And so Deputy Director Howard Rosenblum said, wait a minute, I was just reading this patent application, which I was, which was sent to me to, to, to review for possible national security implications. That was basically the Lucifer algorithm patent yeah. application. So they brought the Lucifer algorithm in and the NSA started working on it. Mm -hmm. And so a very important part, in fact, like the integral core part of the, of the block cipher is the S box, which is what creates the obfuscation part of the algorithm. There's other important pieces, but like, this is the core of the obfuscation. Right. And they told Feistel about eight of nine criteria, but they have one secret criteria, the ninth criteria. Yeah, that ninth criteria was about classified techniques using differential cryptoanalysis. So they were like, 
the S-boxes you propose are weak to some of our analysis. And they didn't tell him what. <laughs> and so they worked on it themselves and they came up with an S-box implementation that, they, that satisfied their ninth criteria. And they said, here, use this. <laughs> now, everything in the Crypto Wars book, and frankly, Des has gone through a fair bit of analysis at this point in time. So we're right. pretty confident that we know what happened from external analysis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were actually playing it straight, but it looks super sketch. Oh, really? Oh, I'm <laughs> surprised mean, by that. They were, they were doing God's work, as they say. They, they were really trying to make the algorithm more secure. But right. going to this guy who's lived the crypto life since forever ago, mm-hmm. who designed the algorithm, telling him, your boxes aren't secure, but we can't tell you why. Uh, and and coming back and saying, it. here, use the ones we're giving you. And this is the NSA. Yeah, yeah. Who we shall remind you, he's not really trustworthy of because he believes, with maybe some justification, that they shut down the, the cryptography work that was happening at CRC and probably mm-hmm. shut down the work that he was trying to make happen at MITRE. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so why, why would you trust that? <laughs> So, okay, we're not going to tell you why. Yeah. Okay. And we wonder why nobody. <laughs> <laughs> so eventually this gets agreed to, it gets done, even with the sketch involved. Right. So they go and they publish it for public critique in, in about 1975. Mm-hmm. And in those requests for public comment, Some guys that we have heard of sent some responses. And those guys are Whitfield Diffie and Martin Hellman. Mm -hmm. Turns out that Martin Hellman got interested in cryptography, really got spun up after working at IBM near Feistel and hearing Mm -hmm. some talks by Khan about cryptography. Oh, that's cool. So Martin Hellman and Diffie was originally a student before he became a collaborator of Hellman. Mm -hmm. They are the next generation of cryptography from Feistel, and they were inspired very importantly by Khan and Feistel. Very nice. Okay. So there's a common thread. The first half of the episode wasn't a waste. (laughs) (laughs) So they came back, and the NSB specification for DES was that it was a 64-bit key, but it wasn't really a 64-bit key. It was actually a 56-bit key because the other bits were parity bits used for ver- for validating the key. And so they're not random. They're not part of the key length that is used for the actual cryptography. Mm, okay. This is the reason why, if you look into it, we always say that DES is a 56-bit algorithm and triple mm-hmm. DES is triple that. It's not 192 of bits. It's 168 bits. Right. Well, can be. There are implementations that actually have two keys. They use the first key and then they use the second key and then they use the first key again. (laughs) Anyway, they did a bunch of analysis and they had one of the things that they said was the 56-bit key length was not long enough. To quote, the key size is at best barely adequate. Even today, defeating the system by exhaustive search would strain, but probably not exceed the budget of a large intelligence organization. Mm -hmm. As the feasibility of such a project depends on the cost and speed of crypto hardware, the future seems bright, meaning Mm. for crypto analysis. 
So Diffie and Hellman estimated that it would cost about $20 million at the time to build a computer capable of cracking a 56-bit DES key in a day. At the right. time, their estimates. Mm -hmm. Whilst well, so the sum was expensive, if used constantly over a five-year period, the per key price would go down to about $10,000. So if the intelligence was worth more than $10,000, then it'd be worth building that if you were in it for the long haul. Right, yeah. And Diffie and Hellman estimated by the same criteria that breaking a 64-bit key using a similar apparatus, the same pricing mechanism, would be $5 billion because, remember, key space goes up by squares. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So by just going from 56 to 64 bits, they would have made the price per key significantly more expensive. Mm, 20 yeah. million to 5 billion. 20 million is tough change. Yeah. Now, they also said that the S-boxes used traits that were, to quote them, surprisingly similar to a type that could be used to build a trapdoor into a system. So they were suspicious by the structure of, of those uh, S-boxes that the NSA did put, as it was known, a hook in the system. Mm. But in January 76, the NBS's uh, Seymour Jeffrey replied to Diffie and Hellman saying, Des met the NSB or the NBS's, the National Bureau of Standards criteria, and uh, they were going to go ahead with it. The mm -hmm. NSB estimated it would take 91 years to break a key rather than the uh, Diffie Hellman 24 hours. But they didn't say how that would be managed. Okay. Um, and the thing that we that I think is important to say about DES and all crypto systems that we find in adoption is that it's hard to move off of them. I think we've talked a few mm -hmm. times about the adoption effect of once something gets into sufficient usage, it's really hard to get everybody to migrate off. Mm -hmm. yeah. DES absolutely suffered from this and was in use into the 90s a fair bit longer than it was expected to be under the National Bureau of Standards' own expectations at the time. Mm -hmm. They thought it was only going to be in use for five, maybe 10 years, and it was right. in use for more than 20. <laughs> and only in the early 2000s were we seeing complete deprecation of single DES implementations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we basically ended up with the digital encryption standard by accident. And we ended up with a key length shorter than the, the algorithm was originally designed for, which was mm -hmm. 128 bit. Some people have suspected that the shorter key length was to make uh, NSA's analysis go from the completely impossible to the maybe feasible. Mm, right, yeah. That instead of gaming the, algor the algorithm by the S boxes, they were able, they were suspecting maybe we can just throw enough computing power out of it, at it. Um, again, yeah, that's when, supposition, but people have made that supposition. Like, people yeah, I mean, actually know cryptography. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there, there's something valid there. Like you were saying, everyone was expecting them to tamper with the S boxes. So if they knew everyone was expecting that, then you kind of obviously can't do it because then people are going to investigate and go, wait, what the hell? And call you out immediately. So Better, better to fall back on like a, you know, plan B. Yeah. So the first part of the war was about disclosure of the entire practice of crypto. Mm -hmm. There's a lot in the book that really makes you believe that the Department of Defense 
the entire intelligence apparatus was really believing at the time that cryptography was a thing for governments to do mm -hmm. and not something that was something that was important to the general public and people outside of that feistel importantly was recognizing that secure communications becomes really important when we have an internet worked world yeah i don't think he saw the world we're in today but i do think that he began he saw the beginnings of it and yeah i think it's interesting that neuromancer didn't come out that long after this Mm -hmm. and which was the beginning of the of the cyberpunk genre and also made a lot of conclusions about how the world was going to work when all of this information was available and how things were interconnected right yeah so a few people were able to get glimpses of the future even at this point in time and the things that they said have some of their assumptions end up getting broken like the idea of that digital dossier being assembled, we are at a point in this kind of post-Web 2.0 world where everybody's so invested in, you know, in online, or by everybody, I mean most of everybody in, in the US and EU and a lot of other places right, yeah. um, are so invested in the use of the internet that they've given a ton of information, not just to their governments, but also to these giant corporations that have no reason to care uh, about your particular privacy. Oh yeah, yeah. And only marginal reasons to care about everybody's digital privacy, meaning it's only in service to them being able to keep and use the data. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not a moral stand. It is purely a bottom line stand, doing just enough to get people to continue to trust the system or enough people to continue to trust the system. Yeah, exactly. And then we get to the point where they need cryptography. And cryptography is available from the industry side. And they essentially co-opt it because mm -hmm. IBM was trying to make money off of it. And it was eventually agreed to, to, to use it for the DES standard. But the DES standard needed to be not encumbered by intellectual property. Right. And in doing so, they didn't even make the implementation as good as it could have or maybe should have been at the time. Admittedly. One of the constraints that we had on the advanced encryption standard wasn't just how good is your algorithm, because all I think it was eight of the mm. final candidates were good algorithms. They had passed all of the data security aspects of the testing. The final phase was actually about performance. And it was very yeah. important that they were coming out, that, they, that the algorithm they were using would perform well in a bunch of different implementations, including smaller embedded systems. And that's where... Um, and I'm sure I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but I've always read it as Rajundal, which was which became the AES algorithm, performed very well. Right. Yeah. But like, if you wanted to use a secure algorithm that didn't use AES, you could use one of their the candidates. There was uh, a combination of algorithm and hash algorithm. Uh, symmetric algorithm, a hash algorithm called uh, Tiger and Serpent. I believe Serpent was the symmetric algorithm and Tiger was the, was the hash, but I could get them mixed up, that used a different SBOX uh, implementation, but were one of the candidates for AES right. that you could use now hmm. and implement because it's not encumbered by intellectual property because that was also one of the, the AES requirements. Right. If you didn't want to use AES, it's just that there's a lot of AES implementations out there. And yeah, yeah, yeah. 
it's easy and convenient to implement strong cryptography that performs well on most modern CPUs. So why go that way? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is kind of the first bit of the government and industry and cryptography, but it sure wasn't the last. And in the next episode, we're going to be talking about some of the next pieces of cryptography that were invented outside of the government world and attempts by the government to constrain the distribution and use of cryptography. Mm -hmm. right, so yeah. That'll be, ha, it just occurred to me. We called this one a new hope. The next one will be the NSA Strikes Back. <laughs> I like it. Recording notes can be found at www.hackingthegibson.online. Follow Hack the Gibbs 1 on Twitter to get notified of new recordings. Support the continued observation of Hacking the Gibson on Patreon.